had to put it we found it on the internet and it's like delivering hamburgers all right we are here today to talk about one of the most cited facts in all of sports science and i'm facts air quoting there um is that you lose power when you stretch i hear it all the damn time if i'm if i'm stretching for 10 seconds at the crag somebody is inevitably going to pipe up you're gonna lose all your power and i'm like Okay, maybe not. I mean, but why it's would, become this like. Why would you even warm up? You know, predators <laughs> don't warm up to chase a exactly. rabbit or some shit. Like, why would you exactly warm up and stretch? And no one's ever seen a dog stretch before, right? never, except for all the time. <laughs> um, it's become this strangely like polarizing thing with even some of the people who who actually do follow science getting stuck in this really dogmatic view, and. I think that it's just the nature of talking about stretching and flexibility. Everyone has their own dogmatic side of it that they're on. So we're going to try and shed a little light on it here. Um, Starting with a paper called Factors Affecting Force Loss with Prolonged Stretching. And this is from the Canadian Journal of Applied Physiology in 2001. Authors are David Beam and Dwayne C. Button. Beam and Button. This sounds like a great law firm. Um, Purpose of the study was to investigate factors underlying the force loss occurring after prolonged static passive stretching. Um, Any thoughts from you going into this initially? Like before we even get into this paper, what was your thought when it was suggested that we talk about stretching? Uh, So what was it about? I don't know, five to eight years ago, this idea first started getting, or it's when I first noticed this idea that like, you know, you lose, people really talk about how you lose power when you stretch. So you probably shouldn't stretch before you lift or do anything that requires force generation. And you know, everything that was getting thrown around was all absolutes, which means I immediately stopped paying attention to it because that stuff just annoys me. <laughs> so like, you know, I had all my, in my studies and you know, the, what I do on the outside end to keep growing as a coach, like you see these papers cited and I've seen you know, this paper's main point being shared along with some other ones that maybe we'll get into later. But honestly, I never read this paper because the amount of dogma that was thrown around just annoyed me. So yeah, yeah. so I was actually, I was interested to dive into this one and really look into it some. Yeah, same. All right, let's get into it. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Cursaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. With our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I'm ready. How about you, Chris? I'm exceptionally ready to talk about flexibility, actually. Um... I know there are a lot of people, regardless of whatever evidence there is, who are going to get angry. And I kind of just like that. 
Um, let's first jump into the methods here. In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just flip a coin. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the methods here, Paul? All right, cool. So for the methods, they originally had 16 subjects. It looks like four of them were disqualified because they weren't able to activate more than 80% of their quadriceps, which you know, I think is interesting to say the least. But uh, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, so they had 12 healthy active male subjects from a university of population. Again, no female um, subjects, which is another interesting uh, That seems choice. to be kind of rampant in a lot of the studies we end up looking at. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, I wonder if, because, you know, this one's from 2001. So maybe as we get later on and more recent, maybe yeah. we'll see more of a, a balance per se. But, yeah, that is something I kind of noticed. I've got a big uh, F with a question mark there in my notes. So, yeah, that was yeah. surprising to me. Like, you would think that for a study to get as much validity, validity and relatability to the outside world, you'd probably want to include females as well. But I don't know. Right. But anyways, yeah. so, you know, the median age was uh, was there from 20 to 43 years old. Um, they're all volunteers. So six of them did a, were a control group, so they didn't do any stretching uh, before or after the testing. Then the other six were the experimental group where they would test and then do the stretching and then do the testing again. And what kind of what was what did the stretching look like that they were doing? So they did four different stretches for five sets. Um, each stretch was held for forty five seconds, and they rested fifteen seconds. When you add that up for all five sets, that's about twenty minutes of time under tension in the stretch. So they did a standing quad stretch, which is basically you know you're standing on hands on the wall, grabbing your foot, pulling it back towards your butt. They held that for forty five seconds, rested fifteen seconds. Uh, then they also did the uh, hurdler stretch, which you know, these stretches also do kind of show when this study was done because I haven't seen right, some of these done right. in quite a while. Um, <laughs> that hurdle stretch was all of my high school years. Likewise, that was, yeah, high school, all that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, you're sitting down, your left foot or left foot, for example, is back behind you at 90 degrees, your front, your right foot straight out in front of you. So all of these seem to be targeting the quadriceps overall. Um, they had a kneeling yeah. hip extension stretch, which is you're basically on your knees your hands are behind you on the ground and you'd extend your hips towards the ceiling to stretch the quads. And then you had an assisted quad stretch where you would lie down and a partner would help stretch, help stretch that quad muscle. So nice. This, all these stretches actually sound more like 1990 yeah. than 2001. Yeah. They are uh, the throwbacks, if you will. And then they did some testing and uh, this happened about, f this happened five minutes after the stretching protocol was over. So the first thing they tested was uh, the muscle's twitch property, so just a short, fast contraction. Um, and then after they tested the twitch properties after at the five-minute mark, from within the six to ten-minute marks, so this was kind of varied a bit, and they randomized it per participant. They tested three voluntary contractions, which is basically just a knee extension against a uh, force measurement device. So they measured how strong that knee extension mm -hmm. force was. And they did three of those contractions as well as two uh, tetanic or titanic contractions. I'm sure someone can correct me on how to pronounce that. Um, but Which is basically just a longer sustained contraction. Um, it's also kind of crazy. They minimized that to 300 milliseconds because a pain threshold cut things off. After oh, wow. That. So that sounds like a pretty heinous test in my book. 
But so what they did, they did those two Titanic and three voluntary contractions within that six to 10 minute window. So there's about a minute rest in between these tests and they just measured the force or the contraction intensity to see if uh, stretching changed any of these measures. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, this is where we started and, and I think a lot of the listeners out there who are, you know, really listening and paying attention will say, oh, but you're only looking at this long, you know, prolonged stretching. What about all the other types of stretching? And this study was 2001. There's been 20 years of research since then. And science is smart. You know, we as the reader need to exercise some of that as well. And in the case of flexibility, the question of does it help our performance is really broad. Um, It requires looking at many smaller questions, including the duration of stretching. This is just one of the possible durations. Um, The timing of the resulting performance, which they're, you know, they're waiting five minutes here. And then the type of stretching and, and there are all sorts of things you can manipulate in this study. And no single study is going to have have all of the answers. Um, and I think that's really important to recognize. And that's why we started with this paper, just to point out this is one tiny aspect in answering a much larger question. And good researchers will look at one small question at a time in order to answer that bigger question. And as such, we can't simply look at just one of the thousands of papers conducted on stretching to find the answer. So, we're going to pivot here. And instead of looking at this one little study, since we have this giant body of research, what we're going to do is go look at a systematic literature review instead. And the title of this is The Acute Effects of Static Stretching on Muscle Strength and Power, an Attempt to Clarify Previous Caveats. It's from the Frontiers in Physiology Journal 2019. So much more modern day. Um, the authors are Helmi Shabin, uh, Yassine Negra, Urs Granacher, and David Beam, same researcher from the study we started with here. And he's one of the superstars of, of flexibility research. He's got a, a couple of TED Talks, I think, one in particular that's really enjoyable um, and if you're interested, you should definitely go check that out. He's probably done more flexibility research than anyone else on the planet. I think it's important to note too, that he's still doing, he's looking into the effects of stretching on static stretching on muscle strength and power, which, you know, was the study he he, uh, published in 2001. This is 18 years later and he's still exploring it. So everyone who's taken a paper from 20 years ago and being like, yep, this is it. This is the the answer. Like the person who, published this paper is still trying to figure out the nuances, still trying to dial in and understand what is the actual truth behind all of the results they're getting. So right. it's always which, evolving. Which is how science works. Yes. You know? 100%. Yes, science! Yes, science! Yes, science! Yes, science! Yes, science! Wow. It, it just really wanted to be all about <laughs> praising science right there. I'm just going to leave that in. Yes, he was silent. <laughs> So the purpose of this review 
is to summarize previous and current findings on the acute effects of static stretching on muscle strength and power performances. And two, to update readers' knowledge related to previous caveats. And then three, to discuss the underlying physiological mechanisms of short-duration static stretching when performed as single-mode treatment or when integrated into a full warm-up routine. And I think that's really smart. You know, how often do we just go straight from static stretching right into the performance? It's far more likely that in the field, in real life, it's going to be part of some sort of a warm-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where you're going to see it the most. I'm very, very rarely are you seeing someone doing an intensive stretching protocol right before, you know, an exercise and then they're going to go do some more exercise and then, okay, before this last set of strength work, we're going to do some more stretching. So right, right. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit more relatable in the real world. All right. And let's, um, since we've already been through this with the other paper, let's just real quickly look at the kind of the basic methods of a review, just for people who aren't aware. A review essentially takes a look at the entire body of research. Um, They do put some qualifications on that. And this one in particular included studies that examined the acute effects of static stretching on subsequent strength and power performances. And only studies that addressed a research question related to those acute effects of of static stretching on strength and power performances and included healthy, active, or competitive individuals were included. And that the main outcome was a performance or physiological measure. Um, So, it sounds to me like what they were trying to do was make it more real world. Yeah. A couple other things I think are important on the methods here too, is they did use certain databases. So Medline, ScienceDirect, and Google Scholar, I'm sure if you used a different database or different method of pulling papers, maybe you'll get a different combinations of those. And they actually use keywords to pull some of these papers too. So they Mm -hmm. used keywords such as static stretching, chronic effects, physical performance, strength, power, and injury. And then once they got that big pool of papers from those keywords, then they use that criteria to kind of narrow down that list of papers to kind of get the body of evidence that they use to make the rest of the review. Right. Did you see anywhere? I looked and then I went online and looked and I couldn't find an answer to this. How many papers were included in this study? I didn't see that. I looked around. Usually they have that. Um, yeah, Maybe I was surprised a, not to find it. So I'm not sure if this is a meta-analysis. I think they go a little more in depth with some of those um, formats with the meta-analysis format with like, you know, how many papers and they have like the N equals number and all that. But um, I think they just, for this one, they just gave us the search methods and inclusion criteria. Yeah. And I know they, they cite 55 other papers in here, several of which are actually also literature reviews. And some of those reviews do include several hundred papers. So, um, there's a lot of information just kind of all bunched together here, um, which has its pros and its cons, you know, on one hand, we get to see the results from a lot of different papers, a lot of different methodologies, um, and people coming up with, with different, but similar results. On the other hand, um, it's we don't really get to see the details of any of those individual papers to determine for ourselves whether it 
feels like a good study or not, or if they might have missed something that pertains to real world um, application rather than just in the lab. Yeah. So how I'll usually use review papers if I'm trying to dig into a subject is I'll read the review and then I'll pick out a couple papers out of, you know, the short blurb they give about a paper or a review mm-hmm. that seems interesting to me. And I feel like maybe we could go down that rabbit hole and then I'll go down and find the, find the, um, where it's cited in the references and then go try and find that paper and then read that paper and yeah. until I get tired or run out of time. But, <laughs> yeah. You could, you could almost, on. you could almost go forever here. You know, mm-hmm. there are just so many papers that reference so many other papers and it's really neat to now that, you know, we've gotten into some of these climbing specific studies. It's really neat to go back to a subject that has just thousands and thousands of of papers published on it. Because there's not that for climbing yet, for sure. So. Yeah. And, and here's an interesting thing. Stretching, like I said in the beginning here, is has become this really dogmatic, polarizing thing. No one can really agree on a lot of the aspects of this. And there are thousands and thousands of research papers, you know, over the last several decades. One climbing paper pops up saying something and all of a sudden it's fact in a lot of people's eyes. And that's just not how science works. And, you know, we'll probably get more and more of the cloudy general guidelines as we move on into the world of climbing science, I think, or I hope, or maybe not, maybe everything will be clear and maybe there'll be only one way to train and then we won't have to make any decisions and everyone's going to get really strong and it'll be great. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Not how I think it's going to work, though. All right, let's uh, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Please. All right, I really need a break here, okay? You're listening to this super nerdy podcast, so I can only assume that you're interested in improving your climbing. Well, good news. You're in luck. Yes, science! We have training options for nearly every level climber in nearly every situation, from general prep to fully custom, from ebooks to weekly plans delivered via mobile app. Visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta for more info. And while you're there, check out Kettlebells for Climbers 2, now available as either an ebook or a proven plan. The follow-up to our wildly popular Kettlebells for Climbers plan that started so many climbers down the path to being stronger, better prepared, and more athletic. So I'll go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we are back from the break, and we are ready to jump into what the results of this review were. We're not here to sit in judgment. Why not? The thing is, if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? Whatever you, whatever you think is supposed to happen, I'm telling you, the exact reverse opposite of that is going to happen. So for me, one of the very first things that jumps out is that they point out that this this all, all of this research comes down to dose and response. And this is, I mean, honestly, this is the case with all training modalities. Um, So even if you're a diehard, no stretching fan, I mean, if that's what you preach, if you have the first clue about how humans respond to training, then you have to recognize that not all doses of stretching will result in the same response. And I think that's a thing that gets overlooked really often. Yeah. I think when we consider the dosing of stretching as we go through this review, 
they first looked at the first wave of papers that came out that kind of were saying, hey, don't stretch before you do strength and power. And they looked at the dosage of that. It seemed like most of those stretches were 60 seconds or more. Right. Those seem to be the stretches. If you get above that 60 second mark, that's what really appears to start dropping that strength and power in a significant way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems to be one of the big findings here. And um, some of the physiological mechanisms of that long duration static stretch were that it lowered muscle activation. And it increased the muscle tendon unit compliance, which negatively affects the rate of force development, but also has some pros in that, you know, there's there's some literature saying that it's better for force absorption and there's the potential that it could reduce injury. I don't think there's any clear lines being drawn there yet, but a lot of people are making that that hypothesis. Yeah, I think the big thing I got from this is really the stiffness of the muscle tendon unit really does play a big role in performance, especially with plyometric activities. So, you know, if we're talking about powerful movement climbing, let's, we'll keep it climbing related, but there's a bit of a stretch shortening cycle there to where you need to like load up and explode or catch a hold and move on to the next one. Um, and that's all stiffness there. You know, the muscles are more so the tuners of the connective tissue in that perspective where the connective tissue is really the thing that is storing and releasing the energy. So if we increase that compliance, there's going to be a bit more inefficiency in the storage, which could be why we're seeing a little bit less uh, or why we're seeing that decrease in power production after those longer duration stretching. Cause we have that springs a little slack, a little more slack. If you right. Will. Something I thought was interesting that came out of a study that, um, one of the rabbit holes I went down, I honestly can't remember which rabbit hole it was and I didn't write it down, was that um, when they looked at lifters, it showed about a 5% drop in force. When they looked at runners, it only showed about a 2 or 2.5% two drop in force. Um, and that made me curious as to, I wonder if it would show up in climbers, like stretching your fingers or stretching your shoulders, is it going to show up at all? I don't really know. And I don't think we can make a, a very accurate guess as to that until there are studies that are looking at that. Could you make an inaccurate guess? I can, make, I can make an inaccurate guess. I, yeah, I'm really good at say? making lots of inaccurate guesses. I would think there is a small percentage drop in the stiffness of that muscle tendon unit. And I would assume you would use, lose a little bit of force. However, I don't know that we ever use a hundred percent of what we have available anyway. And, you know, if we look at say a 5% drop, um, one of the things from the David Beam Ted talk that he points out that I think is really interesting is that if you're Usain Bolt, a 5% drop is big, you know, but he's an elite athlete. Um, a 5% drop might have cost him first place and put him into 16th place in the Olympics. But he's using 100% of what he's got. Um, it's extremely rare, if ever, that I'm using 100% of what I've got. So... I'm not sure it makes a difference for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially if we're looking at this, maybe in the aspect of going into a training session, mm. 
mm-hmm. don't think it's going to affect it all that much because you're not trying your lifetime limit project where, you know, you need a hundred percent of everything you have physiologically. Right. So I think, you know, if, and this is if you, this is if you stretched for over 60 seconds to begin with right. anyway. Right. So, yeah. So I think, yeah, maybe they have statistically significant results, but I'm, I'd be interested to see how they show up in a real world situation in our sport. Yeah, same. And like you said, that's just the long duration static stretch. When they looked at the shorter duration static stretches, they didn't significantly alter muscle activation. In almost every review, there was like four or five complete other reviews they pulled into this this review that all pretty much said, if you stayed under 60 seconds, you're pretty much good. You weren't going to have any statistically significant decreases. Yeah, same with the muscle tendon unit stiffness didn't significantly negatively affect it there. So it seems like um, a short duration static stretch is totally fine. And they also said if you used it during a warm-up routine, so maybe stretches in conjunction with some other tissue temperature warming activities, some general movement work, it could actually be a net positive and that we're warming up the tissue temperature, right? helping with those muscle physiological qualities along those lines. So I think when they came down to it at the end of this review, the overall recommendation was that, yeah, keep your stretches under 60 seconds and incorporate them in a well-rounded warm-up protocol and you're probably in a great spot. Yeah. One of the other things I saw in here that was super interesting is that there's a 2018 study from Blazevich, I believe he's Australian, um, that showed positive psychological benefits. Um, the, the people yep. in the study thought they would perform better. They believed it, irrespective of the stretch type. So even if they were stretching for 60 seconds, 30 seconds, didn't matter, they believed they were going to perform better. And that's a, a very key part of performing well for almost all of us. A hundred percent, you know, in a study, the placebo effects an effect for the reason they have to control for it is because it's actually effective and it changes things. Right. So, you know, from a performance perspective, if you're going into it mentally positive and feeling confident, you know, the odds are tipped more towards success to start out with. Yeah. There was there were a couple things in here I was curious about. Maybe you understand better than I do. Um, they mentioned there was a 2019 study from Conrad et al. Um, that after five minutes of static stretching, MTU stiffness was decreased, but then after 10 minutes, it was back to normal. So it sounded like it decreased the stiffness of the MTU, made it more compliant. But then 10 minutes later, it was all back to normal. Um, however, they also mention that all of the time stretches resulted in increased range of motion, but they don't say for how long. And I was curious if you knew more about that or if you saw something in there that said range of motion is increased indefinitely or it's increased for those five or 10 minutes or do we know? I don't think we really know from that. I think we'd have to just go with what they said with their timeframes. Yeah. Like, you know, they tested it then. Um, I'm not sure where we go to if it's like, yeah, permanent or, you know, multiple hour long change in that range of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we just got to go with what they're saying in those, uh, the, those timeframes. I'd have to read that actual study to 
yeah come at it from a bit more informed point of view i think yeah same there are there are a lot of studies here to read (laughs) i'm just going to default to david beam most of the time since he seems to be involved yeah Um, anything else in these results that you found surprising before we jump into application and how we might use it uh not particularly i thought it was a well done review i think it came with some really good practical application. Like, you know, it's a review you read and as a coach, you're like, okay, this makes sense. This is a lot of information, but it's boiled down into, you know, a couple few actionable points, which is what I really like from a review. Like if I'm Mm going to spend, you know, an hour or so reading a review, I'd like to come out of it with something that I'm going to use almost immediately or like feel pretty confident about. And I think this study did that. It broke down, you know, the changes in attitudes over time from, I mean, they even have a timeline here from the world war world wars all the way up into 2019. I thought that was cool where they showed how vast opinions swaps from side to side. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it was a really good review. Yeah. I think that that timeline they show, I'm going to have it in our social media posts that you can see on Instagram as well. But um, that timeline is really interesting to me because it's, it's showing us how science works. They, ask a question, they answer that question. And then they're like, oh, but wait, what if we ask this question in a different way? And then they come up with different results. And then they're like, what if we start combining these two questions and ask it in this way? And then they're coming up with new results. Um, and they're they're never just being super dogmatic about it. And I think that's the, I mean, that's the scientific method. That's, that's how it should work. And, you know, this kind of breaks down is also nice to read because it kind of breaks down how I apply stretching with the people I work with. I like to program a lot in supersets and, you know, trisets, what have you, where, you know, we've got a big strength movement mm-hmm. and we've got some mobility work or stretching thrown in, but we keep it short and they're not just hanging out in a stretch for five minutes, but it's a great way to build that in and they can still lift hard after that, yep. but they're feeling good. They're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, possibly rushing their rest. Right. And it just, it fits really well with my model. So this also fits my biases quite a bit. So that's maybe why I like it as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've gone back and forth on stretching myself. So I'm, I'm not sure I had a bias here necessarily. Um, I just found it really interesting. And I, what one thing I loved, and you already mentioned that the study does this, but I love that at the beginning of the study, they say that a lot of the evidence can be really confusing for coaches and practitioners. And that's the whole purpose of this study is to kind of make it less confusing for those of us who are using it. Exactly. All right, let's look at the application. I got all these little pieces, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them in lockup before the sun goes down. All right, should climbers be stretching? And how? What's that look like for you? Uh, yeah, I think it really just comes down to a case-by-case basis. If you feel you need it or it makes you feel good or you feel like it's part of your warm-up, I think it'd be useful to do so. I'm not going to go out and tell you that you need to stop doing what you like to do. Um, I think some people may not need to stretch as much, and I don't think that's an issue as well. I think going with the guidelines from that review paper more so if you're going to try hard later, or maybe you're about to jump on your project of the season, you know, you got last couple days left, performance is critical. I probably wouldn't hang out and pigeon pose for three minutes before you jump on the bowler. That's probably not going to be the way to go. 
I think, you know, if you look at the results from that first paper we were talking about, they did see some significant drops in that uh, maximum voluntary contraction. You know, they dropped about 20 pounds or so if you had to do some rough napkin math because they gave it in Newton's. But uh, I think I figured it out. But yeah, it was 20 pounds drop, which was significant for the uh, force generated in that knee extension. Um, I think that was the important thing to take away from that uh, first paper we were talking about. Is that, and that was, a longer, that was a longer stretch. So it showed more of that decrease in force, which could matter. But if, I think if you keep things short, stretching feels good to you, and you're noticing range of motion improvements, I wouldn't stop. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you know that your project has a position that you have a little trouble getting into, by all means, do some, you know, short duration static stretching, less than 60 seconds um, during your warm up. make it part of a, a full warm up that include also includes dynamic stretching and sport specific warming up. And I think, you know, that increased range of motion helps you get into that position. You're not experiencing a lot of force loss in that case. So it makes total sense to me that, that we would do it. And there is some conjecture, some hypothesis that it could reduce injury. Why not? You know, if it's not going to hurt your performance, why not hedge your bets toward that? I'm not going to say it will reduce injury because we just don't know. Um, and the goal for me is performance. If it's going to help me get into that position and I'm going to perform better, great. We actually did a little, I, when I read this study a couple weeks ago, I just was thinking and playing with stuff in the gym. Mm -hmm. We actually did a little test retest with someone where we set a challenging drop knee move on our spray wall and I ran them through a circuit of short 30 second kind of dynamic stretches in and out of hip external and internal rotation paired with some shoulder mobility drills just mm -hmm. kind of so that we're not stretching the hips for 60 seconds or more. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't do the move in the beginning stuck the move first try afterwards. There's a lot of other stuff going on there. So, but they did notice they felt stronger in the drop knee. So yeah, it could be useful. Yeah. I mean, as I boulder harder and harder, as I try harder and harder things, they involve more extreme for me positions and especially drop knees, um, you know, big high heels where my hips are going to, be working at their limits. I absolutely am going to do short stretches so that I'm stronger when I get into those positions or I can get into those positions easier and then apply the strength that I have in those positions. Yeah. It makes sense to do that. I think. Yeah. And frankly, you know, like I said, during the results section, especially when it comes to stretching the lower body, I'm honestly not terribly concerned if climbers want to stretch. I mean, even for the longer than recommended 60 seconds, you know, if they believe it helps, then great. And if, if there's ever a time in climbing when we need a hundred percent of the force we're capable of producing with our legs, I'm not sure what it is. You know, if you're an elite sprinter or a jumper, sure. Climbers, it's pretty rare. Speed slab climbing. Speed slab climbing. <laughs> I want... Nothing to do with that. <laughs> Actually, I've done a little bit of that, strangely enough. Oh, yeah? Um, Ray and I used to race up this slab in Vitavu. We used to time each other to see who could climb it the fastest. You should have stretched before. 
Or you shouldn't have stretched before. Shouldn't, shouldn't right, have stretched longer than sixty seconds. <laughs> I might have screwed myself. <laughs> and one more time, I feel like I just have to say this: that this is a great example of science working. Um, one research paper, one study is not the full depth of science working. Um, this is how it works. Up until the 90s, the advice was that everyone should be using static stretching as part of a warm-up program. When I was in like my freshman year of high school, we would stretch for like an hour before track. You know, I was a pole vaulter. I'd stretch with the sprinters, tons of hurdle stretches, lots of just laying on the track stretching. But that was the 90s. And then from the 90s to the early 2000s, the advice was to not use static stretching as part of your warm up. And now we're combining those things that they learned and saying what we learned here. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it just shows how things change. And I think this is a great example of how one paper needs to be considered in context of the entire body evidence. That's where reviews come in really helpful. So I thought this was a fun thing to do where we took a paper and then looked at the review too and saw where that puzzle piece fit into the entire puzzle because there's mm-hmm. a lot more to it. Yeah. Is there anyone that you wouldn't have stretching? Um, what, maybe in what cases? People get pain in larger ranges of motion. Uh, mm. Probably stay out of that. Um, if folks tend to be on the more flexible side of things, I'm not sure that would be the I don't think they, I don't want to say they shouldn't stretch, but maybe their time could be better spent elsewhere. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. It's hard to, goes back to the blanket statement thing, right? We can't just say, I don't, I don't really think there's any people who shouldn't be stretching. I don't think everyone should be stretching. You really just got to go with what you feel like you need and if it feels good and if you have the time to do it. Yep. Good advice. I like sitting on that fence. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what a lot of this is, honestly, is sitting on the fence, you know, and, and doing it on a case by case basis. Everybody wants a magic pill and just a a blanket way to improve, but that's not really how it goes. No. Even with thousands and thousands of studies looking at it. Yep. You know, sometimes it just gets more confusing. We're still trying to figure shit out. Yeah. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links in your show notes. And you can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in lovely Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, At the time you're hearing this episode, it's probably getting really nice in Chattanooga. So if you're out there, hit Paul up at Crux Conditioning. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please Tell all of your friends who spend their warm-up time telling you that you should stop doing any stretching in your warm-up, that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we discuss flexibility specific to climbing and whether or not your poor high-stepping ability is what's holding you back from those bigger numbers. See y'all later. It's done. You keep saying that and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I were done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music 
including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Rifflord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Don't nod, yo, yo.